Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. You're very obedient in coming to order. It's, it's great. Um, so, I'd like to welcome you all to this lecture this evening. The Gerald Walters Lecture is the most prestigious and long-lived of the public lectures of the University of Bath. It was the first lecture series to be established after the granting of the Royal Charter to the University of Bath. Dr. Gerald Walters, in whose honor the series is named, was our first reader in humanities and is credited with bringing to the university the recognition of the importance of studying the nature of society in what was then a largely scientific and technological institution. Indeed, some years ago, Gerald's widow, Dorothy Walters Godfrey, herself a benefactor to the arts in the university here, assured me that it was Gerald who persuaded the university to change its title from Bath University of Technology to the University of Bath in order to reflect the much broader intellectual reach of this institution. I have to tell you, Dorothy was a very formidable lady. I wouldn't have dreamt of arguing with her about that proposition. Since the first lecture in 1971, given by Lord Clark, we have had a remarkable series of lecturers from every walk of intellectual endeavor. Past speakers include Bishop Peter Price, Dame Janet Finch, Baroness Honora O'Neill, Dr. Simon Thurley, Sir Bernard Silverman, and Sir Anthony Selden. Lord Patton, Sir David Varney, and Sir Peter Hall. Our speaker tonight, Professor Ian Golding, is a natural inheritor of this tradition. Ian is the Oxford University Professor of Globalization and Development and was the founding director of the Oxford Martin School, a major center for interdisciplinary research into critical global challenges. He is currently the director of the Oxford Martin Programme on Technological and Economic Change. But from 2003 to 6, he was the vice president of the World Bank, having previously been the bank's director of development policy. From 1996 to 2001, he was chief executive of the Development Bank of South Africa and economic advisor to President Nelson Mandela. Ian also earlier served as principal economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and was director of trade, agriculture and environment programs at the OECD Development Centre. He is the chair of the core global initiative to reform economics and a trustee of Comic Relief 
and other charities. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ian Golding. <laughs> Vice-Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, it's a huge pleasure to be here uh, and an honor to be able to give the Gerald Walker's lecture. Uh, hearing the names of people who've preceded me uh, fills me with some trepidation because I know some of them and they're pretty impressive speakers, not least the Chancellor of Oxford University, uh, Lord Patton. But I know also uh, in this same series, the founder of the Oxford Martin School, James Martin, has given a talk. And uh, I want to pay tribute to him as well as a, a truly inspirational person that made possible the Oxford Martin School. And uh, through that, my being here. I would not be here uh, if it had not been for him creating the school and them appointing me as their first director. What I want to share with you is some thoughts about the intersection of technological and economic change and the period we live in in history. And I hope that is very much in the spirit of Gerald Walters, given his desire to bring humanities to what was otherwise a technological and scientific-focused uh, university. Because it's the intersection of these which I believe is necessary to understand where we're going uh, and how we can shape it for the better. It's also a pleasure, by the way, to have in the front row South Africans, my fellow countrymen, so thank you for coming. For me, this is the defining image of our time, and it's obviously of the Berlin Wall uh, coming down in November 1989. But it's a metaphor for walls coming down everywhere, for us moving from a world which was rather divided in the 80s to a world today where there are flows of ideas, products, and services across national borders in ways which were simply unimaginable at that time. Now, I was living in Paris when this wall came down because I was in exile from South Africa. Uh, I'd been involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, and I didn't feel at the time I would ever go back to my country in my lifetime. At that time, in the late 80s, it seemed uh, extremely bleak. And yet, within two months, of course, of this wall coming down, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Uh, he came to Paris within the year. Uh, we had dinner, and he asked me to go back, which I did, to run the Development Bank of Southern Africa and be his economic advisor. And what I realized in that experience is that things that seem unconnected to our lives, that seem about other places, touch them in intimate ways. And this is the nature of change in our time. So we need to be aware of what's happening around the world and how forces which seem unrelated to our lives are likely to shape them going forward. And because there are more people more connected in new ways, the pace of change is accelerating. The contributors, the number of contributors, the number of actors, the number of cooks in the kitchen of the world is at a totally different order of magnitude. And that's why this is the slowest evening you'll know for the rest of your lives. <laughs> um, relax and enjoy it. Because the walls have come down, there are two billion more people in the world. Ideas have traveled which are leading more people to lead longer, healthier lives than ever before. Simple ideas 
like washing your hands prevents contagious diseases, smoking kills you, wearing a safety belt saves your life. And very complex ideas such as those embedded in new vaccines, in cures for cancer and other technologies spreading around the world. So life expectancy rising by about 20 years over this period. It took from the Stone Age to the 1970s to get a 20-year improvement in average life expectancy in the world and infant mortality plummeting. So 2 billion more people, and that means there's a lot more participants. And it's not just 2 billion more people, of course. It's that the wall came down at the same time as the World Wide Web was being developed. And so we moved from a world where only about 200 million people were connected in the 1980s to a world today of 6.5 billion people connected. And if you believe in the random distribution of exceptional talent, there's simply a lot more geniuses out there that will shape our lives. The Mozart, Shakespeare's, and Einstein's that will emerge from the streets of Soweto, Mumbai, Shanghai, and elsewhere. And they will change the world. But we know too, and we know from our laboratories, and we know from our conversations, and we know from everything, that it's not individuals that change the world. It's people sparking off each other. It's people learning from each other. It's people in teams, people in communities. It's people in laboratories. It's people that share experiences and learn from each other that shapes the way the world transforms. And that's, of course, happening in a totally different way. So, for example, the group I started, which is working on new cures for cancer, works on a 24-hour research cycle with data in the cloud, with teams in Shanghai, Mumbai, Paris, New York, and San Francisco. This is different to the nature of invention, the nature of transformation that occurred in that previous world. And it's not simply happening in the sciences, it's happening in all domains. If you go to YouTube and look at, for example, hip-hop dancing, you will see communities in Harlem communicating with communities in Shanghai. They are learning more quickly. You know the story of the Kenyan javelin thrower that learned to become an Olympic athlete by watching YouTube videos. This is different to the way that learning happened in the previous world. And so we should be very excited. We should understand that this is leading to higher rates of innovation, which is why this is the slowest evening. And change is more rapid, and there are more actors making that change happen. But it does make the world more unpredictable, because the rate of change and surprise is growing. Uncertainty is growing with this dynamic. Now, it's both formal and informal. Bath University obviously represents part of the formal community of learning. What struck me most is how formal learning has grown around the world. When I first went to China in 1983, there were 78 people doing doctoral degrees. This year, within one department at Tsinghua University, where I teach, there are more than 78 people. There's over 300,000 people doing doctoral degrees in China alone. And that's why you see this explosion of journal articles and of other indicators of the level of knowledge being generated. Far from the world being flattened by this process, though, as Tom Friedman suggests, it's becoming more mountainous. Places mattering more than ever. And it's particularly dynamic cities where a lot of this is happening around the world. 
You have over 70% of the world's population living in a major city now, or less than an hour away. And it's these dynamic cities and the differences between these dynamic cities and places left behind that increasingly shapes our politics and our dynamics of society. And I'll come back to that. There's lots of ways of demonstrating the point that I've been making about the world changing and the flows across national borders of product services and ideas being different. But this is one way of showing it. These are financial flows. I'm an economist, by the way. Um, so I look at these things a lot over the last period. And you see they were relatively stable and flat until about 1990 and much higher orders of magnitude, much more instability in the subsequent period. The top flow, red, is foreign direct investment. Green is what remittances, what migrant workers send back. Black is portfolio flows, that's bond and equity flows. And blue, foreign aid, official flows between countries. The simple point of this figure is to show that these flows were much lower, have become much higher, and are much more unstable. And virtually any flow you look at will have that characteristic, except some of the new flows, like, for example, mobile phone traffic. Now, it's not just that there's more flow across national borders. It's also there's more complexity. Everything that we do is coming from more and more places, and everything we understand has more and more sources, whether it's an idea or whether it's a pandemic, or whether it's a financial crisis, or whether it's an item of our clothing or our mobile phones. Every, the ingredients, the number of ingredients, has increased dramatically. And because of this growing complexity, it's increasingly difficult to understand things. Cause and effect, attribution, are more difficult to discern. What caused the global financial crisis? Well, library shelves have been filled with books about this, and I'm actually doing a BBC um, series on it, but all I can tell you is that no one agrees. <laughs> and that's because there are so many different causes or possible causes. And the same is true of a source of a pandemic or a cyber attack. But it's also true of many other things shaping our future. The system has a dynamic of its own and any one actor in it can contribute and is of course affected, but Difficult to always sometimes discern. And that's why when our politicians stand up and say, vote for me, I will safeguard your future, we know that they're being disingenuous. Because no person, no matter how powerful of the most powerful country, can shape the future of that country or society. And this integrated world means we become more and more codependent in it on others and their actions. Now this process, although I will tell you many things that will scare you, I want you to remember this figure tonight, because this is the best time in human history to be alive. It's certainly the best time to be born in poverty on average, because one's chance of escaping poverty are greater than ever in human history. The red line is income growth, and that is on the right-hand axis, exponential, and the green line is population growth, and that is on the left axis, which is arithmetic. And you see that both are more rapid than any period in history of the last 2,000 years. 
and income growth is even more rapid than population growth. So this is the reason we are experiencing in our lifetime things that have taken many generations previously. The difficulty with this is that the past is a very poor guide to the future. We're in an unprecedented time in human history, in the dynamics and in the complexity, the speed of change. And that means that if you ask the question, what will these curves look like in 30 or 40 years' time? Are they going to keep going up? Are they going to turn around? Are they going to flatten out? It's difficult to answer. But obviously that's what matters for all of us. Where is this all going? Now the reason it's so important to understand this is because it's led to so rapid progress. Globalization has a bad name. By globalization, I think of integration, connectivity, flows across national borders of goods, services, products, and most significantly, of ideas. And it's important to stress that this has been associated with the most rapid progress humanity's ever known by far in the shorter period. Average life expectancy, I've mentioned, illiteracy going down in the world dramatically. In a world of 5 billion people in the late 80s, only 2 billion people could read or write. In a world of 7.5 billion people today, 6.5 billion people can read and write. Obviously, it's a tragedy that a billion people cannot read and write. But the fact that 4.5 billion more can is cause for celebration. And so, too, is the fact that there are 300 million less desperately poor people in the, in the world, despite the world's population going up by 2 billion. This has never happened historically. Historically, when you've got rapid population growth, the number of desperately poor people increased, even if their relative share declined. So we live in a very special moment in human history, and this is a reason to sleep happily tonight. But it's a period which is perplexing for many reasons, not only because of the pace of change, but because of the levels of uncertainty. Now, some people talk about this period as the fourth industrial revolution. I think it's different, because I think it's totally different to an industrial revolution. It's not about industry. It's about much broader changes. It's much more rapid and ubiquitous. And I think the most interesting period to compare our time to is the Renaissance, the age of discovery that we celebrate 500 years later. And that's a recent book. Now, this is not because I believe that history repeats itself. It certainly does not. But it does rhyme. There are clues, there are insights that you can get from understanding historical sequences as to where we are today and where we're heading. And I think the Renaissance is particularly interesting because it was driven by an information revolution. It was driven by the transformation from handwritten manuscripts, which are extremely expensive and rare, to mass literary production. 50 million books printed over a 50-year period. Cheap paper and print in people's own languages. A revolution in the way that ideas spread. Of course, we know it in terms of the iconic changes it brought 
to the arts and to the sciences, not only the da Vinci's and Michelangelo's and others, but it moved from a flat earth to a round earth. This was globalization 1.0, total circumnavigation, Mercator's projection, and of course, the absolute revelation that we weren't the center of the universe, but simply another planet going around another star, uh, which was a fundamental challenge to authority in that day, the Catholic Church, which had us at the center of the universe. So this was a revelation which was profoundly unnerving to people and changed the way they understood each other and the world. Now, this transformation, like the transformations today, was also about dynamic cities. Then Florence, massive diversity in Florence. Muslims, Jews, gays were welcomed. And you saw this phenomena of that, this information technology made place more important, not less important. But what this technology also did is created the potential for new risk. The ships that went to the New World, the Americas, took diseases that killed most Native Americans. A natural genocide. And of course the ships coming back brought syphilis and other diseases that killed many Europeans. And in Florence, this guy, Savonarola, really a jihadist, an extremist, overthrew the Medicis. He invented the political pamphlet. He used this new technology, like some people today would use a tweet, and was able to circumvent the authorities and say to people, this globalization, this change, is subversive. It is taking your jobs and the scribes were being put out of work. The riches that are coming back from the new world are not benefiting you. They're leading to growing inequality and that was true. And of course the authorities are deeply corrupt. In those days you could pay indulgences to the church in order to go to heaven. You could pay people to go on pilgrimages for you. This was a seriously corrupt regime. And it touched a chord and the Medicis were deposed and Florence became a jihadist republic. Uh, all diversity was stamped out and there was total intolerance of change and God's word through the Bible again became the authority the burning of books, the bonfire of the Banifetes, you know these stories. And of course, the creation of new religions that went viral, Luther, using these same technologies. Then the pushbacks, the inquisitions, the religious wars, and something which I find an echo of in terrifying ways today, the hounding of experts and science. Total denial of evidence became the gospel. Now, what worries me today in this process is we see similar sorts of things. This isn't Johannesburg, although it could be. <laughs> this is actually Sao Paulo, but it could equally be Mumbai or Manila. While inequality has gone down between countries, it is going up within countries everywhere. 
all countries experiencing rapid change are experiencing rising inequality. And the reason is that when change happens more rapidly, people get left behind more quickly. And unless you worry more about that in periods of rapid change, this process leads to growing inequality. Now, there's also other dynamics that are happening, which is that rich companies and rich people are able to globalize their assets into offshore tax havens, into offshore other functions, and increasingly disregard the needs of those left behind around the world. This is not only about income inequality. This is also about health and many other inequalities. These are mortality rates, death rates, in the US. And what you see here, and this is work from Angus Deaton and Anne Case, Angus got the Nobel Prize for Economics about three years ago, is that the life expectancy of white non-Hispanic males has gone down dramatically. The death rates have gone up dramatically in the US. And what's happening here, basically, is a story that explains a lot of the politics in the US, that people in decaying towns in the middle of the US are asking, what did globalization do for us? And the answer is not very much. In fact, it destroyed their lives. Their life expectancy is lower than their parents. Their chances of getting a job is lower than their parents. Their incomes are lower than their parents. And their chances of moving home are half of what their parents were. In other words, housing mobility has gone down dramatically. And that is because people cannot afford to live in dynamic towns. And that's a global story. The cost of living relative to incomes in the dynamic cities is at record highs. And of course, the solution used to be that you'd stay in a dormitory town nearby and commute to the dynamic job centers. But that increasingly is being taken away as congestion, transport costs have risen, and the cost in the dormitory towns of housing has also increased in dramatic ways. So people are not objecting to change. They're objecting to not being able to change. They are locked out of change. So the first great challenge of globalization is inequality and the uneven distribution of the benefits around the world, mainly within countries, not between countries. The second great challenge is that not only good things connect, terrible things connect as well. And so the question is, how do we have integrated systems without rising interdependency? How do we have global airports without them becoming the super spreaders of pandemics? How do we have global financial systems without them being the super spreaders of financial crises? How do we have cyber systems without them being the vectors for cyber attacks? How do we connect and yet remain resilient to that? What I call in a previous book the butterfly defect of globalization, an obvious play on Lorenz's butterfly effect, which is the chaos theory of physics. And the third great challenge is of the global commons, which is a very old challenge in economics, which is as more and more people have a good time and become connected and become wealthier, 
their good times cause havoc <coughs> for the planet and for other people. So how do we all enjoy our sushi without the extinction of the tuna? How do we all climb the energy curve without catastrophic climate change? How do we all take antibiotics without antibiotic resistance making all of them ineffective? These summing up problems. What's good for individuals is bad for society. And as we get wealthier and more connected, our lives shape the lives of others and the planet in dramatic new ways. In other words, when you're poor, you can do what you want and you don't really change the world. But as you get wealthier, all your consumption and all your choices increasingly have spillovers, what economists call externalities. And I'm going to come back to that. What I want to do now is race through three sets of trends to help us think about the way these curves are going over the next 10, 20, 30 years and then come back to some of these adding up uh, issues. I'm going to talk about demographics, I'm going to talk about economics, and I'm going to talk about technological trends. I mentioned average life expectancy in the world increasing, and it's also converging. There's one exceptional region, which is southern Africa, where while life expectancy in the rest of the world has gone up by 20 years, in southern Africa, because of HIV AIDS, it's gone down by about 20 years, and that is a tragedy. It's also gone down in Russia for a different set of reasons. But this is a global trend for other places. Much more surprising to me has been the collapse of fertility around the world. With over half the countries in the world now below replacement level, and Africa being the only uncertain region, will Africa follow the rest of the world in coming down dramatically in terms of its fertility rates. I believe it will. Now, when you project forward these population growth rates, you see that many regions of the world are already past the turning point and populations coming down rapidly. It certainly is in Europe and it certainly is in much of Asia. It's happening in Latin America as well. And North America depends on what happens with migration. And Africa is really the growing region. So the world's population slowly stabilizes at around 10 to 11 billion and then comes down quite dramatically. This means median ages double everywhere where this is happening. And the world becomes much older. And this shapes many things, including the politics, because the elderly begin to transform the way that governments work around the world. And it's particularly acute in Asia, where you have 700 million people over the age of 60 within the next few years. So we need to remove from our mental maps ideas of population pyramids and put in place these sorts of structures, which I hope when you look at, you see a vase that you put flowers into. But when I look at it, I see a coffin standing up. <laughs> now, there are many details in these things which are of great significance. The one obvious point that jumps out of all demographic projections for all countries of the world 
is that this is the evidence that women are wiser than men. They don't make as many stupid decisions. They don't drink as much. They don't smoke as much. They don't stab each other as much. And they don't drive as many cars into as many trees. And they live longer. In all countries of the world, they're wiser than men. But the opposite is happening at the bottom of these projections. You have many more young boys born than girls in all countries of the world. And that is because when you live in sexist societies, and all are, the status, the income, the career prospects of men, boys, are greater than girls. And when you're only going to have one child, you choose to have a boy. And that's an increasingly skewed gender distribution around the world results from this. Now, there are many other things. As an economist, this weight of the elderly is a big, big issue. And, of course, there's big questions around pensions and others that I won't go into now. Every country is unique. China, because of its one-child policy, you have this sort of skyscraper shape. The U.S., because of immigration, a much healthier structure, a sort of beehive structure. About half the children being born in the U.S. today will be born to immigrant parents or grandparents, even though they are only about 14% of the population. So what countries do with migration shapes many things about the future. I wrote a book, Exceptional People, How Migration Shaped Our World and Will Define Our Future, because that's what I believe it will do. But demographics is one dimension of that. So the workforces of the world change in dramatic ways. China has 1.6 million less workers this year than last year. It's already coming down very rapidly. India and Africa growing. Europe, dramatic declines. Europe's population a third smaller in the next generation. And if there's not going to be significant immigration flows. The numbers of potential migrants are enormous, but they don't overwhelm the basic demographics that underline them. So even if the migrant flows were 10 times their current levels, it wouldn't change the decline in the workforce from about 800 to 600 million in the advanced economies over the next 30 years or so. Turning to the economic megatrends, my view of the future is that it's going to look even more like the past. In other words, emerging markets, developing countries, those terms increasingly should be redundant, are going to be the drivers of global growth, accounting for over 80% already of global growth. They will account, they already account for over half of the world economy, and that will rise to about 70% over the period to 2050. This does two very significant things to the world economy. It lifts the average growth rates. So developing countries on average are growing by over 4.5%. The rich countries on average are growing at under 2%. As they fast-growing economies become a bigger and bigger share of the world economy, they lift global growth. And they also stabilize global growth because they're more and more growth engines. So when the U.S. gets a cold, the rest of the world no longer gets fever. And that's because there are so many other places driving global growth. 
So this is very good news going forward. What it means is that many countries become wealthier than many of the advanced countries today. They overtake us, basically, including the UK. And then many have already. Many are wealthier than Southern Europe, for example. Now, when you look at per capita income, you have to divide the size of the economic pie by the number of people. And that, of course, means you need to not only guess economic growth rates, but also population growth rates. Uh, so you have two variables. Because China has no population growth, everything is income growth, and it goes above $30,000 per capita. Um, whereas, because India's population is still growing at about 2.8%, it doesn't go above 10 And Africa, big uncertainty, above 5 If you change those assumptions on population growth, you get very different outcomes. And, of course, behind this is growing income inequality. The number of middle-class people expands massively to 4.9 billion, of which two-thirds are in Asia. The consumption shares of the world also changes in dramatic ways. You see how significant Asia is. In China's the bottom, the next is India, followed by other Asia. Lime green is Japan, the US, and Europe. Asia becomes about 70% of global consumption over this period of time. Now, one of the many, many, many reasons why Brexit is a terrible idea uh, is that the future of Britain is not in the US, which will be over half the market size uh, of Europe going forward. Uh, Europe is going to be double, and Asia, of course, even more significant. And that's why the sorts of trade agreements that Europe is striking with uh, Asia is of such significance. A key question is, is this realistic? Is there enough food? Is there enough water? Is there enough atmosphere for 4.9 billion middle-class consumers in the world? Uh, we have about a billion now. Um, and I'm going to come back to that question, but that was the subject of this book. Let me just go through the technological megatrends before I come to some of these adding up questions. Now, all discussions about the future are, of course, making one a hostage to fortune. Um, and that's not a good reason to shy away from it. The best minds in the best institutions get the future wrong. But everything that matters is going to take place in the future. <coughs> Our lives those we care about, lives, our societies, etc. And so, although we know that the future is more complex and more uncertain, we should spend more time, not less time, thinking about it. Because that's what matters. Um, and it's thinking about how you shape the future that, of course, is particularly important. Not let the future happen to you, but shaping it and, indeed, that's what some technologies are trying to do. Looking back is fun and easy. We know what is passé. We know that each of these devices replaced all of those. But I can't put up the slide for what it's going to look like in five years' time, let alone 10 or 20. What's good about science is that there are some certainties. There are some physical laws. There are some things that are happening which are likely to continue to happen in the future. 
And one of the extraordinary things that's happening is around computing processing power, where there's a lot of debate, but in the Oxford Martin School, we've had over 50 people working on the future of computing. And speaking to them, I get a consensus view that we're likely to see a continuation of Moore's law for about the next 20 years. That means we're going to have 100,000 to a million times the power for about the same price in 20 years' time. A huge question is what will we do with it, and that we don't know the answer to. But that this sort of capability is developing, I think, uh, is pretty certain. Of course, there'll be lots of potential shocks to it, not least in the integrity of cyber systems and the Internet of Things. Now, one of the things we're already doing, for example, is building at the molecular level. This is from the Oxford Martin um, nanomedicine group that I started. And here you see the construction of a nano needle about eight billionths of a meter wide going through an individual cancer stem cell um, about 10 billionths of a meter deep at a speed of 44 billionths of a second. Driving into this individual cancer stem cell a medicine to kill the cell at the individual cell level rather than generalized chemo or radiotherapy, which we know is extremely, extremely crude. So this capability will become more widely spread. This is from another one of the Oxford Martin School groups. This is the Oxford Martin School Stem Cell Lab. And this is this lab technician's skin turned into a heart cell. So this is not uh, an embryo. This is your own cell groups reprogrammed to be pluripotent, and in this case, a heart cell. Other things that are happening, including in genomics uh, in health, are even more challenging. The back mouse, a wild mouse. The front mouse, a genetically modified mouse. The back mouse drops out after about 20 minutes, 200 meters. The front mouse goes for two hours, two kilometers, 10 times the endurance. Now, these things raise massive questions, ethical questions, legal, and many, many, many others for society that we're just beginning to scratch the surface of. And that's why this intersection of the humanities with the sciences is so pressingly needed. That's why we really need to think very deeply about what is happening in the labs. And we need to understand that this power is advancing dramatically. Now, for example, with CRISPR and other technologies, we will be able to recode in embryo sequences, which raises massive questions. Are we going to create superhumans? Who's going to choose? Is this a national, individual, global decision process? And what we also need to appreciate is that this is advancing not at exponential speed, but even more rapidly. Genomics is going at faster than exponential. So Craig Venter, that's on my board, sequenced the first human genome in the 80s. It took him $3 billion and 10 years. That same process can be done now in 20 minutes for $100. That's exponential. So all of us should have, I don't know, the NHS is a bit of a tricky organization, but we should have within 10 years or so, individual, individual sequences. And then we have individual medicine, 
designed for us, not generic. Question is, who's going to print it? We have a 3D printer, and will it happen? Because those are social choices. But if it doesn't happen here, it'll happen elsewhere, and that will increase inequalities. So how these things play through is important. We also need to understand that all technologies are dual use. Far from it as they would have in Silicon Valley that there's no problem an app cannot solve, there's also no problem an app cannot create. These technologies can be used for immense good and immense harm. And that's not a new understanding. But the social environment and the regulatory environment, the institutional structures in which technologies emerge and who controls their destiny becomes more and more important as these technologies become more and more powerful. And of course, it raises big questions about what's the significance of national borders when these technologies can become globally used. One of the technologies, for example, we need to worry a lot about is the same genomics technology used to create biopathogens. So the price of a clean room to create your own pandemic. Smallpox, Ebola, whatever you want to create. If you have a good biochemistry degree and a bit of money, you could do it and put on a drone and fly it down our streets. So this raises massive new questions about the power of individuals and what these technologies enable, as we've seen with Twitter, but also in labs, is that it's changing the relationship between nations and individuals, where individuals are now getting the power that only nation-states had in previous periods of history. The power to inform millions of people, the power to shape the destiny and to create very, very deadly possibilities. As always, finance is at the front of the technology curve. It has the money to invest and the incentive to invest because it makes more money by doing so. And what we see in the financial crisis is how these technologies were simply misunderstood. One of the many causes, and a cause which I think is very plausible, is that management simply didn't understand what the traders were doing with credit derivatives. You know the story of Bering's Bank. This bank had existed for over 200 years. Can you imagine the political, technological, and other transformations over a 200-year period? Management had no problem at all in making this institution thrive. And suddenly they woke up one day and found one kid that worked for them, Nick Leeson, had destroyed them, playing with a bit of a new technology overnight. That's what happens. And so understanding these technologies and extending the role of small groups, small groups of actors, even individuals, becomes increasingly important. And as we think about risk in the 21st century, we need to appreciate, again, the past is a very poor guide to the future. The system is evolving so rapidly and in new ways that our human capabilities and institutions are lagging behind. And one of the great challenges is how to manage complex interdependent systems. We can draw risk curves for anything, probability and impact. This is the long tail of uncertain and high impact. But it's not the Nicholas Taleb black swan exogenous event. Long tail. These are things that we are creating as humanity. We just don't understand. There's nothing exogenous about climate change or a pandemic or a financial crisis or a cyber attack 
or any of these other big dynamic changes. There are things that humans are creating that we need to focus on and understand more effectively. Systemic risk is important because of its overwhelming consequences. It's not new. In the UK, there's this plaque in Poole that suggests a rat coming off a ship in 1348 might have led to a plague that killed half the British population. That's not new. But what's new is the pace and scale of this. So the swine flu that starts in Mexico City is in 160 countries in 30 days. That's new. And the emerging infections group in the Oxford Martin School that's modeled this shown it exactly replicates airline traffic. So the super spreaders of the goods of globalization are also the super spreaders of the bads. Cyber, of course, is our new nervous system. Can you imagine your lives without your mobile devices and cybersphere, internet? And as we move into the exponential growth of the internet of things, and our bodies increasingly become integrated with this, we already have colleagues beta testing various devices like insulin release, for example, connected. Trust and integrity becomes more and more important. And so ensuring that we know what's going on here is vital. I'm not perfect yet, but I will become better. Right now, I am learning about human emotions. I have a default emotion, which is to be happy. But I can be sad too. Or angry. I can emulate pretty much all human expressions. I would like to live with humans since I learned from interactions. One day, I'll work in your business. Or your home. I will help with the kids, or care for your elderly. So this is um, Sophia. She's in a box now. She's been taken apart. She's very out of date. Um, this is the beginning, just the beginning of robotics, interaction, etc. But it is growing at exponential speed and with machine learning the capabilities are not growing at exponential but super exponential speed. And so we move into a world that's anything that's repetitive and rules-based, that doesn't require dexterity or empathy, can be done by machines. Man any manufacturing process but also call centers, I was speaking to um, someone I know who runs one of the big mobile networks who told me already his automated call centers are getting better customer service reviews than his people call centers. That's with existing technology. We're not talking about the future and improvements. So in this world, what do humans do? And particularly I worry about developing countries where the middle rungs of the development ladder have always been repetitive rules-based tasks. That has been how countries develop, going through these processes. So the changes are dr dramatic, and the group that I created that works on technology and employment suggests that about 47% of US jobs are vulnerable to machine intelligence, about 40% of UK jobs, and about 60% of Chinese jobs. In this future world, what are the humans unique attributes. Now many other things are changing as well, including of course production technologies. This is a little clip I filmed at um, SpaceX, another South African, 
Elon Musk's uh, factory. He is manufacturing 65% of his rocket on site. This is titanium printing of a 3D part. You can print anything. And that's localization, of course, as well. So how technology intersects with the future is something we need to think very deeply about. And we need to understand that technology doesn't happen independent of choice. Germany has banned GMOs and nuclear power. It's not because these things exist that they simply get adopted. And this relationship becomes key in defining it. Let me end with some thoughts about how things add up. Now, the global commons challenge is one that we're familiar with. We know that the North Atlantic Cod were destroyed. We know that there's no price of a rhino horn that will make the rhino reproduce more. Price is meaningless to nature. And of course we know that natural systems have natural thresholds. So antibiotics only work if a certain small part of the population take them. And so how one adds this all up is important. This is the tuna market in Tokyo where this tuna went for a million pounds. This is the market's response to the scarcity of a natural resource. Price goes up, more and more high-tech fishermen chase the remaining tuna or poach the remaining rhino, and then they're none. That's the market. It doesn't allocate scarce resources. Of course, governments are not very good at it either. This is the Aral Sea, shared by six governments. Drawing water to feed their people, correct in the short term, disastrous in the medium term. Climate change presents the biggest challenge we face because it is so complex in many ways and because it has this historical legacy of the rich countries having caused the problem, but most of the fixing needs to be done by developing countries who now account for well over half the flow. And so how we grapple with this is vital while ensuring, of course, that the rest of the world still climbs the energy curve, which is absolutely essential. The challenge is made more complex by the fact that the global governance system is totally unfit for 21st century purpose. Built in a different time, small changes, I don't think Trump would lift the furniture. So we like individual countries in cabins on an ocean liner with no captain on planet Earth's deck. And like so many aspects of globalization, this is a good thing which is also a bad thing. It's great that the world is no longer run by 12 white men smoking cigars in a room after, it was, after the Second World War. That's what happened. New powers have risen. There's a power shuffling and distribution. And in this process, we're in a power vacuum. We're real, no global leadership at present. So we know a lot. We're interconnected. But there's not a lot of management of the system. One of the reasons there's been this collapse in belief in experts and authority which we see around the world is because the best expert system in the world, which is finance, has proved itself totally incapable. At the national level, our treasuries and central banks are experts, and at the global level, the IMF and others. And this is, of course, what the IMF said just before the financial crisis. Don't worry, be happy. What they failed to understand was increasing complexity the disconnect between managing at the national level a global system, the revolutionary technologies, in this case credit derivatives,
driven short-term incentives of the banks and others, lean management becoming the mantra, and of course, too much reliance on data. There wasn't a problem of too little data, there was a problem of too much data. And the jettisoning in that process of judgment and ethics. Now, because there's been this manifest failure to manage globalization, both growing inequality, failure of expert systems, failure of management of global commons, and failure of systemic risk. People are saying, you guys don't know how to manage this. Let's pull back. Let's make higher walls. Let's try and retreat to a pre-globalized age. The problem with that is that it fundamentally fails to understand this moment in history that we're in. Because there's no wall high enough that will keep out climate change. There's no wall high enough that will keep out a pandemic or a cyber attack. But of course what these high walls do keep out is the technologies, the people, the products, and most importantly the ideas and the ability to cooperate which is necessary to manage an integrated world. So we know what's happening. We can experience empathy with others on the other side of the world using our new networks. And we can celebrate the fact that we've moved from this renaissance creation by white men to an integrated, diverse world, where we are drawing on the talent pool of the world's population. And that should give us immense hope. We also see that these new technologies and disintermediation of authority can be used by the center as well as by the extreme right and left as we've seen with Macron in France. And we've seen that for the first time in history, science really has made a difference in shaping a global agreement around climate change. Too little, too late, but nevertheless better than it not happening. So there are many reasons to celebrate and there are many reasons to worry. And in the end, it's by our actions that we will determine whether this is our best century or our last century. And obviously, I hope we will still all be rocking on <laughs> to a very happy old age. Thank you. <laughs>
One of the big questions around data, for example, and it applies in other areas, is how do you ensure that human rights principles, privacy, and big data are regulated? And what the UK has going for it, and I think Europe does too, but this is very different to the US where there's a totally different view about data, and it's very different, of course, to China where there's another type of view about data, is can we provide a vision of society for the future where human rights and ethics are the, at the center of decisions of our technological change? And can we provide one which is not national and inward-looking, because that's meaningless, but uh, global? But it's a, big, it's a challenging moment for the UK. I think you, know, you can explain Brexit in many ways. Um, and one of them is that <laughs> delayed response to the loss of imperial power and colonialism um, and the desire to try and reinsert an, an independent uh, future. But this is the, the question going forward really has to be is can the UK continue to punch Belmont's way? Great universities, Bath and other universities, Oxford, Cambridge, the fact that we've got so many in the top 10 in the world, or the top 100 in the world, is just astounding. But can we keep that up? And that depends on many, many things. Uh, none of these things can be taken for granted uh, going forward. Okay, uh, thank you for a wonderful lecture. I'm a, I'm a medical doctor by profession. So I was uh, encouraged when you talked about cancer uh, and the advances that you are making in terms of uh, finding therapy that is more specific and less damaging than the uh, available uh, chemotherapy. Uh, my question to you is that um, what are you doing in terms of uh, embracing indigenous knowledge systems that are existent and have somehow been thwarted by big pharma, uh, where we know that the monopoly of the industry in terms of cancer. And uh, so I think uh, that is, in my country now, South Africa, cancer is becoming uh, one of the pandemic uh, that is destroying, you know, and the cost of care is unthinkable. So I think uh, uh, by finding a cure that is ethical and not just driving big business, I think is something that we should be looking towards. So what is your response in finding that, in, in, in response to that? Yeah, um, cancer's, you know, just uh, absolutely terrible in so many ways, although there's been some progress in, in treatments. Um, I think different issues. One is, what is the intellectual property environment around research in general, medical research, one aspect of that? And how does it respect indigenous knowledge? Uh, this is a very big area, and it's one that we don't have a central program on. Uh, but there are a number of people at, uh, associated with the Oxford Modern School. Chas Bunstra, for example, is looking at this whole intellectual property area. And there's another uh, group which are looking at the relationship of this to um, the internet and the appropriation through the internet of ideas, uh, for example. But it's not something that, that we've had a, a central focus on. I can only agree with you on the urgency and importance of um, cures for cancer. 
the role of the big pharmaceutical companies is clearly a very, very big question. Um, anyone that's seen the price of some of these drug treatments uh, that are available, um, that's obviously going to increase inequality. Um, and um, it, an interesting question for us is also is what are the lessons from the failures uh, in the pharmaceutical industry for other areas. We're thinking a lot about, for example, are Google and Facebook and Amazon new monopolies? Uh, and are they stifling competition and absorbing innovations? And if so, is, that, is the regulatory environment that people are talking about in the pharmaceutical context applicable to, for example, other data regimes? Uh, so all I can say is you've put your finger on a very important issue um, and we need to work more on it. Thanks uh, for the lecture. Um, so you touched throughout on how power now operates globally and politics is kind of trapped at the level of the nation state um, and power and politics are currently divorced um, and this causes a lot of uh, political issues. Um, I was just wondering if you've encountered any research or you yourself if have any pragmatic uh, suggestions for how we may try and remarry uh, power and politics. Yeah. This, uh, um, well, I mean, different countries have, you know, they're different problems. In the U.S., I think the relationship between money and um, power is, is extreme. You need $10 million to be a congressperson. You need over a billion dollars to become a president. You know, that, that does sort of rule it out for most people. Um, it also means that by the time you get it, you're so in hock to everyone that's donated money to you that, uh, that you're captured by lobby groups and donators. Um, and that, that you know, so the relationship between money and power needs to be severed in terms of politics. UK has a much better process in this regard. But lobbying, uh, you don't need as much money to be an MP. Uh, but, uh, but lobbying is clearly a very, very big issue which needs to be severely, I, I think, uh, controlled. Um, then there's all the questions ar around, uh, starting with access to universities, to access to uh, in different ways. And I think that inequality uh, is at the heart of much of this, and that comes down to, to me, to the two to least talked about problems in terms of solving inequality are housing markets and transport systems. Um, because basically you want people to be able to get to where the jobs are at affordable levels. And that the biggest problem, and it's a problem in the UK, it's a problem in the US, it's a problem in France, it's a problem everywhere. You go to people and say, you know, there's record low unemployment in the dynamic cities. Record low unemployment. And people say they cannot find a job. And it's partly skills, but it's often, they just cannot afford to live there because by the time they live there, they've got no money left um, from those sorts of jobs. Or they cannot afford to commute because they're going to be commuting for four hours a day and it's going to cost so much money, it just doesn't make sense. And they've got to look after their elderly parent or their child or someone else. Um, and um, it's those, that nitty-gritty of how you make societies more flexible. The basic mantra is change is happening more rapidly, so people need more flexibility in where they work, how they work, etc. 
And that's, that, I think it's that disconnect that's leading to these rigidities. Thank you. You, you. you touched on, um, shall we say, the inadequacies of uh, world government and also the um, challenge of uh, introducing ethics to market forces. With many major sort of global companies now commanding budgets uh, greater than, than the mass majority of nation states, do you see any positive trends for bringing... Um, shall we say, control mechanisms to be polite to, um, to these large, powerful global companies? Yeah. Um, firstly, so that you... And I need to try and put out some happy notes that you all go away. <laughs> <laughs> so you go away feeling positive. Um, you know, change happens incredibly quickly to the most powerful. Just look at the Me Too movement. You know, how the mighty fall, how quickly they fall. Uh, when this mobilization of energy happens, it happens surprisingly. You know, in my experience in South Africa, I never thought it would go back, and suddenly. Uh, you see the change in mood around President Zuma in South Africa. Gay marriage legalized, I think, in over 30 countries now. I really, if you took me on a bet on that on 25 years ago, I would say, mm, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime, 30 countries. So things happen quickly, and we, we'll see it in a number of different areas. And the mood around big companies is changing. The mood around the Starbucks and the Googles and, and Facebook. Look at this. This Facebook thing is a big deal. Um, people's feeling and trust is changing. So I think it can change. I think we'll see a very strong movement against offshore tax sheltering. Uh, which people feel very irritated about. Why should these companies, the digital companies, on average pay 6% tax when you know, companies in the UK are paying on average 20 plus percent tax? It's not fair. Concepts of fairness are very important, I think, and shape politics and the way that people go forward. I also think it's important when we see this total failure of global governance to not have an instinct, well, that means there's nothing we can do. Because... In my view, it creates all sorts of new opportunities for other actors to flourish. On climate change, you know, it's really 12 countries that account for about 90% of emissions. Those are the people you need to focus on. And within countries, a small number of companies. Um, in finance, it's a small number of actors. In many, many areas, you need handfuls of willing actors to move and pressure directed to them to help them uh, on, that, on that path. And cities can become very important as well. Universities, etc. So I think the reflex that so many of us have had, which is if there's a problem, government's got to fix it. And if it's a global problem, global governance has got to fix it, is the wrong reflex. That we should basically be thinking much more, okay, what can we do to fix the problem from where we stand? And how can we work with others uh, to address this? And I think that is facilitated by new social media and other spaces that give people a new sense of capability uh, and joining up, which previously they, they didn't have. So that makes me optimistic. But it is, you know, it's, it, it's, it is what I think I ended on. 
which is, it's un, the outcome is uncertain and depends on whether enough people can do the right thing quickly enough. Thank you. <laughs> it forced me to propose a vote of thanks to him for the lecture this evening. Now, I've been at enough of these things to know that people doing that job often talk about the presenter having presented a tour de force, <laughs> an absolutely massive knowledge of the area that they're talking about. I don't think I've often seen anybody actually live up to that description in quite the same way that Ian has this evening. Uh, the depth and the range of things that he's presented to us in a very short period of time is shockingly encouraging. Because what it means is that we have, in the Martin School, we have people who are thinking about the future in a complex way, in an integrative way, and are challenging us to do the same. And I think that that's what we wanted from a lecturer this evening. It's what this university wants from the people who are working here and studying here. That sort of challenge. So I thank you for the bottom well, of Thank you for the invitation. And I have to say that having been told this evening was going to be the slowest evening of my life, <laughs> <laughs> the last thing that I feel is that it was in any way slow. It just went so fast yeah. with so much. And so I thank you. Thank you.